on this episode of the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. I remember the time you brought me, the first time you brought me an eagle, um, I about had a heart attack because you reached in there, grabbed it yourself, and I was like, oh my god, Lil. Lil, this is a bald <laughs> eagle, for the love of God. <laughs> This is the Wild Rose Vet Podcast with Dr. Savannah Howes-Smith. Uh, today we're going to be talking about encountering injured wildlife. And uh, the guest that I have today to speak about this is Lil Duperin. Uh, Lil's a very good friend of mine, and we do a lot of work together with wildlife through the Medicine River Wildlife Center, uh, which is near uh, Sundry, Alberta. And so I'm really happy to have Lil here today so we can talk about something that we both really enjoy uh, doing and working with, and that is injured wildlife. And so, Lil, can you tell me a bit about yourself and what is it that you do? I am uh, a retired elementary teacher, and I started this journey uh, one of my last years of teaching. I wanted my grade fives to see a live great horned owl because we had red Farley Moats owls in the family. A volunteer from Medicine River Wildlife Center brought up Hoover the great horned owl and Luca the Swainson's hawk uh, to give presentations at the school I was at. At the end of the day, the volunteer asked if I would be interested in ferrying um, injured wildlife for the center. And of course I said yes, and that's how my journey began. I, I transferred animals for a lot of years, and then I was transferring a lot of things that died shortly after. So Carol Kelly, the executive director, gave me the training and the supplies I need to run their first aid station here at Drayton Valley. Yeah, that's super cool. And uh, I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't know is um, is there's a difference between transporting wildlife and acting as a first aid station. I mean, it's a really useful thing because many of the animals that are found usually aren't fixable. Um, so it's nice to kind of save, uh, you know, save the stress of transporting the animal when it may not be necessary or something like that. So what's the furthest you've driven to go pick up an animal? Um, I was north of White Court. Um, last month. Yeah, because I mean, you do a ton of driving for them. It's kind of crazy. I think it's way too much driving. <laughs> well, it does keep my driving skills up, let's say yeah. that. And <laughs> I do like to go to the places so that I can get the animal quickly and mm -hmm. be able to give it stuff for pain and stress before I transport it back to my place mm -hmm. where I stabilize them. Some things are like starvation. I, I know the protocol to start and I like to keep them here until they can eat on their own. Um, and then I know that they're strong enough to be transported down to the center, which is two hours for me from here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't think that just simply driving down to the center would be so stressful for them. But I remember, I mean, this summer when I transported those, uh, a couple of those little nestlings, um, they were, they looked worse for the wear by the time we got down there. Um, and that was even stopping to feed them every 40 minutes. So um, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's great that you're able to do that because, you know, it's, it's, I don't think a lot of wildlife centers have that kind of support and they don't really have that kind of network. And, they, and then you're right, what happens is the animal, um, the stress of transport, you know, gives them even worse odds than they already had. 
Because, I mean, I mean, we'll be honest, a lot of wildlife, when they're found, their odds are not great at surviving. That's right. And I've had people tell me, you know, I sang to it or I petted it to <laughs> soothe it. And oh, I, no. I say, uh, no, to every wildlife thing, we are a predator. And what you were doing is the same as if a grizzly bear came up to pet you on the head. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it terrifies It's going to be a little stressful. <laughs> <laughs> slightly <laughs> just a little oh my god and I think that's true I mean that's even even trained professionals you know like every time we get new people coming to work at the clinic I always have to go through um, expectations for handling wildlife when they're in for exams and stuff I'm like we can't take selfies we're not taking them out and ferrying them around the clinic to show everybody you know you have to like put them in a quiet area preferably where the lights are down and there's no sounds um, cause they're not, they're not dogs and cats, right? Like they're not actually comforted by us petting them. Correct. And I tell people the mantra is warm, dark, quiet. I know that's something that if somebody finds wildlife and they call the wildlife center, uh, I think that's what they're instructed to do, isn't it? To just try to like contain them in something and just keep them calm and quiet until, until somebody's able to come help. Correct. And not to feed them. Because, of course, if they're really stressed, they're not going to want to eat anyway. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah, don't put food in or water in with them. What are some of the weirdest foods you've seen people try to feed wild animals? I got some ducklings one time and they had researched on the Internet and were, the Internet told them to feed uh, the ducklings watermelon. Why would um, ducks eat watermelon? I feel like that's not exactly. normally found in like a... A marsh ecosystem. <laughs> so. <laughs> Correct. I remember that time that that bat came in and they were treating it like a pet hamster. Uh, I couldn't believe that. That was something else. I'm pretty sure they actually even had like hamster pellets in a bowl in there. Which again shows how far removed from nature people really are it's just so strange to me but then again like it's because we're 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 educated and we know about all of these things and, and we know why it's not a good idea but I don't know how common that information is and and you're right if you go on the internet you can find all sorts of crazy stuff you know the things they tell you to to do and to feed is just nonsense and then if you go on social media it's it's even worse it's always best to deal with somebody who knows what they're talking about yeah, and that's why I'm glad that, uh, I mean, Medicine River is really good about answering the phones. Like, they've got really good phone coverage, and um, they're really good on uh, on the phone about telling people what to do. Um, I think that's, uh, how many volunteers is it that actually run the phone lines at Medicine River? To tell the truth, Carol Kelly, the executive director, likes to answer all the calls herself mm -hmm. because she wants consistent information given out. Mm -hmm. Now, her daughter, Erin, will also answer the phones and once in a while, Carol lets me answer yeah. phones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say she'll uh, she'll have to start training uh, some extra people to answer that because it's not an easy job answering the phone. I mean, you think it would be, but it's not because you have to be able to field people's questions, have answers ready, and know exactly what information to give with limited information over the phone. Because you know, if you ask somebody you know, what, what bird do you think it is? And they say, oh, it's definitely an eagle. And you go out there. I think that happened to you, wasn't it? Where they said it was an eagle and it turns out it was like a pigeon. <laughs> oh, more times than, than I can count. <laughs> I remember the one time a, a fellow was way out um, by Elk River Road, which is south 
west of uh, Lodgepole. And he was on a site. He was from Fortis and the power had gone out. And he let the centre know that there was an eagle at the bottom of the pole. So uh, Carol got a hold of me. I said, would you send me a picture? A beautiful red-tailed hawk. And I said, uh, could you scoop him up for me so I don't have to drive that far? Nope, I am not touching that. This is a man who deals with live power oh all eight hours a day. As it turned out, the hawk was paralyzed. The power had gone in oh, between geez. the wings and out the leg. And the poor thing couldn't move anyway and, and died shortly after I got it home. But I drove a hundred and... Oh, about 150 kilometers to pick up a, a paralyzed bird. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's that's kind of, I've seemed to see people in two camps when they encounter wildlife. They're either super gung-ho and they're climbing through streams, using their jackets to catch random animals. And then you have the other extreme where somebody won't touch uh, a magpie because it made a noise at them. So like, <laughs> if you have, uh, so if somebody comes across like an injured wild animal, um, I mean, there's a lot of considerations. I mean, I think people need to think of safety first, because, I mean, if, if it truly is an eagle, I don't actually want anybody near that until somebody trained is there. <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. They are a very powerful bird. And that is one bird where I would not feel comfortable having a member of the public try and catch it. Hawks and owls, mm -hmm. they're easy because you just tell them they they don't reach back, just put a towel or your jacket over it, reach underneath, grab the legs, and you've got control and put it in a box. Whereas an eagle is a little tougher than that. <laughs> I remember the time you brought me, the first time you brought me an eagle, um, I about had a heart attack because you reached in there, grabbed it yourself. And I was like, oh my God, Lil, Lil, this is a bald <laughs> eagle for the love of God. <laughs> scared I scared the crap that. out of me. <laughs> I... But if you remember, I have that uh, special box. I yeah, had made yeah. I hadn't seen box. it before, though. And I was like, I thought you were just reaching into this open Tupperware. And I was like, I had a, I actually think I had a coronary. Like, <laughs> I and I remember telling you, I can control it. And so I pushed it down yeah. between the wings. Yeah. So it couldn't bring the talons up. <laughs> then I grabbed the head so you could administer the, the first dose of anesthesia. Yeah. In the nose yeah, I remember that. We were good to go. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I'll forget that. I'm pretty sure that was. <laughs> give me a. Give me a mild heart attack. Like muskrats can be rude too. So it's not just birds that can be a little dangerous. <laughs> that muskrat that came at you and you had to chase them off with a, with a shovel. So. <laughs> I had overwintered that one because uh, that one came up to my back of the house. At the end of January, it must have been frozen out of its uh, lodge where it was, and it was starving. And so uh, they are very dangerous to handle. I just put a Tupperware container behind it, and when it heard me set it down, it jumped at it. And because I had it standing on end, I just set it down and put the lid on it, and I had it. And then I MacGyvered a special dog crate in my basement. And Didn't he chew through it a couple times? Uh, that was uh, a different one that oh. I had in a fiberglass uh, <laughs> dog kennel. And yes, I don't. I still don't understand how it could get its teeth into the flat 
surface of that dog kennel and chew through it. Man, some of the bites I've seen, like we've had, we have dogs come in with muskrat bites before and they're, I mean, they're pretty wicked. They can, they can be pretty rude. So, I mean, I think you just got to take it a case by case basis. If you have somebody who says, you know, I've found like an injured beaver or a muskrat or, or an eagle, I think it, uh, I don't know. I think in a lot of those cases, it's safer to just have somebody like keep eyes on it until somebody can get out there. Oh, definitely. Uh, with the muskrat, I never handle them because mm -hmm. uh, I never had an injured one. So I can release them into this big cage that I have in the basement made for them. And when I go to transport them back to the wild, I put a live trap in there. So I am never handling them because they'll take your finger off. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, they're they're pretty. You wouldn't think they would be that brutal, but they actually can be. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, a lot of those situations, you don't really want um, general public handling them. But I mean, things like, you know, injured seagull, injured crow, magpie, I mean, they're pretty, you know, they're not, they're not going to inflict a lot of damage. Uh, you might get a little pinch. I mean, a lot of those, I think it's kind of similar with the hawks and the owls where you just kind of toss a towel or a jacket or a box or something over them, I think, and uh, you're pretty much good to go and for most of the species. Well, I remember Carol telling me, forget the beak. It's the talons you have to worry about. And as long as you've got control of those, you're good <laughs> Although to I've seen you get pinched by crows a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you bring me a crow or something, you're always like, this one bites. I'm like, Lil, I'm pretty sure they all bite. <laughs> I think you're right. That's their main defense, <laughs> yes. isn't it? <laughs> they don't do anything with their feet, really. Although we did have the one who I swear was uh, channeling his inner uh, his inner owl because he would always like strike out with his little claws and like grip you and like he's trying to murder you with his talons, but it doesn't do anything because he's got crow feet. <laughs> <laughs> they have a strong grip, amazingly. Yeah, but I mean, their talons are so dull. They don't even leave a mark. So it's just That's right. highly entertaining. <laughs> trying to murder you with their little feet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I don't have a problem handling a crow because I know their pinch is yeah. just that. It's just a, a hard pinch. Ravens are harder. Uh, well, they're bigger. Their pinch, so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I forget. Have you been bit by an owl? No. Really? I've been hmm. very careful. Um, and that's one thing I tell people. It keeps... What I do keeps my reflexes up <laughs> because <laughs> I'm very careful around when I have to medicate those things mm -hmm. um, to make sure that I am not in their strike zone kind of thing. I think that comes with experience because, I mean, I haven't been bit by an owl in a very long time, but back in school when I was still learning to handling them, I got bit all the time. Like I've got all these like little pinpoint uh, scars where they pinch. <laughs> You know, and I, I feel like that's something, again, that's that's something like that just comes with time and with handling and with practice. So I would never expect like somebody who's seeing an owl for the first time to know like their legs are actually really long. Like <laughs> they can go a long way. And same with bird necks, right? Like you always think their necks are way shorter than they actually are. Um, and I guess what another dangerous one we haven't really touched on um, are things like herons and pelicans, you know, the ones with the really long beaks. Oh, Yes. I feel like I'm I'm torn. I don't know. I feel like those are ones where I'd rather have somebody keep eyes on it until somebody could get out there. I just feel like there's too much. They're like when you know how to handle them, it's not bad. But if you're unfamiliar, I mean, I feel like somebody's going to lose an eye. I agree. That's one. I'm always learning in this. I've been at this now 22 years. Um, I transferred my first animal in the 
September 1999. And so I... It's a learning process, and the one thing I learned is that those water birds strike for the eyes because that's how they would protect themselves from a predator, and mm-hmm. man, they can strike fast. Oh, so fast. I mean, I've got a cut lip from pelicans before, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, and they've got that hook on the end <laughs> yeah, of the they beak. they do. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, uh, I mean, and if you're working with geese, I mean, I've been beat up by a few geese, too. Oh, yes. Those guys are pretty strong. So I don't know. I guess the moral of the story is if you're not sure, just call the Wildlife Center and we'll let you know what to do. Herons don't swim. Uh, so we knew that that bird had to stick close to shore. Yep, so our yep. chances of getting it were a lot better. And that brings me up to something else where that poor thing, the foot was basically cut off. Mm-hmm from a propeller on a boat, which says to me somebody intentionally tried to run that bird down because otherwise they're so big, people would see it. Well, and and they usually stick close to shore. So it's not like you're going to be going super fast, fast enough that you can't react to get out of the way. I mean, it wasn't a huge leg. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And so um, there are those people out there that take pleasure in injuring Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. unfortunately. And that's, I find that true of gulls in like McDonald parking lots and that where yeah. people will actually drive at the gulls that are feeding on uh, French fries and that. And it's, uh, yeah, not a, a humane thing to do. Yeah. I think it's a mindset where people are thinking of them as vermin, you know, like, uh, like pests or whatever. Well, and that's true. What a lot of people don't realize first of all, if they're not farmers or in a farming community, is I have seen thousands of gulls land in a field when we've had an outbreak of grasshoppers. And those gulls are feasting on all of the grasshoppers. So they actually do good for farmers in rural areas. They do have a job. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, even the even the critters we don't really like, you know, things like mosquitoes and and rats and like all these other like creatures that we don't like. I mean, they all play a role in the ecosystem and exterminating them doesn't doesn't help matters, that's for sure. We don't go out and we don't try to save animals that are being predated on, right? Like we don't try to uh, intervene with uh, animals that were injured because they're about to get eaten by something. Like that's not what we do. It's very much animals that have been injured through human means like electrocution or hit by cars or poisonings, like those things. And that's because, I mean, I feel like it gets to the central idea that we have an impact on ecosystems that is negative as a whole. And so to try to mitigate some of those negative side effects... Um, that's kind of the role that wildlife rescue plays. Um, I I feel like most people are on board with wildlife rescue, but there are a few people that criticize um, sometimes the extent of rescue that people will do or what kinds of animals are being rescued. You're absolutely right. People are not impressed when crows or ravens are rescued. Or coyotes. And I or coyotes. I've definitely had people get upset when I said that I've rescued coyotes before. They're like, why didn't you just shoot it? And I'm like, because <laughs> they also play a role in the ecosystem. They are important. They're they're an apex predator in an area where there's very few of those left. So, What people don't realize and what I've uh, learned over the years is, um, like my neighbor, 
about a mile away, uh, baits coyotes, calls them in and oh, shoots geez. them. And I explained to him that with the food source in the area, with cows calving and all of that, and the cleanings from the cows is very nutritious for these coyotes. So when you kill those coyotes, all that happens is the females that are left have bigger litters. You yeah. can never eradicate no, all of the No, and more are going to move in because they have a territorial tendency. And so if you eliminate the ones that were occupying that territory, more are just going to move in. And that's true of skunks also. Yep. Uh, part of my job is to educate the public. And uh, having skunks around is not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, man, skunks are awesome. You see all these posts online of people like, how do I get rid of ants? How do I get rid of all these wasps and stuff? I'm like, have a skunk. Like, they'll, <laughs> they'll destroy both those nests in no time. And slugs. I, I know of a lady who said she watched a skunk go down a row of lettuce in her garden. And when she went out, there was not one slug left. Oh, man, I should, get me a, I should get me a skunk because I get a lot of slugs <laughs> when I try to grow cabbages. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and, you know, and like skunks are pretty chill. They usually don't, you know, they're not aggressive. They usually just kind of hide and run away. I mean, they're not really that bad to have around. They aren't aggressive. And they're just... Uh, as long as you walk slowly and talk softly, they're not going to spray you. I no. mean, don't keep walking towards them. They're going to raise that tail and warn you. <laughs> However, they only have about a tablespoon of spray. And if they use it all up, it takes them seven to 10 days to regenerate that spray. And in that time, they're helpless. Mm -hmm. So... They really are non-aggressive. It's kind of like honeybees where it's like they don't want to sting you because obviously the bee dies or the skunk is left defenseless. So they don't want to do it. But I mean, they will if you push them to it. So if you just understand that, I think you can coexist with a lot of these things. No problem. Oh, exactly. Because my cat is an inside cat, uh, so it doesn't damage wildlife. I actually welcome the skunk. And I have a fox that visits once in a while and the odd coyote that come in and clean up the mice in my yard. And I don't have any more mice in my garage than when years ago I used to have outside cats. What is the um, most unique animal that you've played a part with rescuing? I'm, I have a guess as to what story you're going to tell, but I'm interested to hear. I have to say, the one I will remember till I die was the hummingbird story. Yeah, that's the one I was going to guess. That's a good story. <laughs> um, what shall type I of, go into it? Yeah, what type of hummingbird was it again? It was an Anna's hummingbird, which mm -hmm. we normally don't have up here. It was November, and a lady in Hinton spotted a hummingbird in her yard. Um, there was snow on the ground. She did normally feed hummingbirds in the summer. So she quickly made some more syrup, put it out, and the hummingbird ate and then went away. And she had to keep rotating warm syrup through the day and the hummingbird would go away at night. She tried contacting um, someone who could help her. As it turned out, there was a bird bander in Hinton with a federal permit. And uh, after a, a few attempts, they were able to net this hummingbird, and then they looked for a place for it to go. That would have they been something to see, hey? How, do, how the heck do you net something that moves so fast and is so tiny? 
Oh, uh, the mist nets. And this, because this uh, woman uh, worked with netting birds, she she knew how to do it so that they can get caught but not injured in the net. Very fine, very um, almost invisible thing. Although <laughs> they named it Tuffy. Uh, this hummingbird <laughs> went up to the net the first time, looked at it and zoomed around it. Oh, wow. And so it, it was the next day that they finally were able to to catch it. And then what do you do with it? It was like the mm-hmm. 20th of November. And, yeah, because uh, when do they normally migrate? They're usually gone by October, aren't they? Oh, my. They're gone. Uh, ours up here are the ruby-throated mm-hmm, hummingbirds, mm-hmm. and normally they leave by about the 15th of August. Oh, wow. You only see the transient ones coming from farther up north. That oh, that's probably what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that. yeah, the migrating ones. But they think we had had a really bad storm, and they think this hummingbird had gotten blown over uh, through the pass into Alberta. Uh, and that's how it ended up in this lady's yard. So these people contacted Carol. And of course, Carol says, of course, we can help. And so um, I got I went out and met them and got this hummingbird. And then Carol told me how to set things up. And I overwinter fuchsia plants, which had aphids on it. So I set up two plants in my one bathroom covering the window uh, of the bathroom and I set up two feeders uh, one with just sugar water and one with sugar water with a protein in it and then Carol taught me to go in after dark with a flashlight find the hummingbird where it was perched and uh, take it over and put its beak into the um, uh, syrup and it was an amazing experience and Mm -hmm. in the end she arranged a ride for this hummingbird out to Campbell River on the island in a private executive jet. <laughs> uh, and, it, uh, and as hummingbirds do over winter on Vancouver Island. Mm-hmm. So it uh, did get back there. And the amazing thing for me is someone videotaped it when they got there. Surprisingly, it didn't die in the journey. And yeah. when they opened the box... I had put a little feeder in. It took time to go over and take a drink before it flew off. Lil, uh, that was a wrap for you for today. You were awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And while you're at it, why not tell your friends about us? Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Check out the show notes to see where you can find us on social media and for more information on the Dr. Savannah Wild Rose Vet television series. The Wild Rose Vet Podcast is hosted by Dr. Savannah Howe-Smith, produced by Trent Wilkie, Shirley McLean, Dylan Wirtz, Tanya Coney-Gauthier, and Valerie Oud-Marchand. Recorded by Ian Armstrong at Wolf Willow Studios. With original music by Wayne LaVallee.